0: Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Your bank should be solving your problems, not creating them. Platinum Bank partners with Twin Cities executives to help them grow their business. Learn more online at PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream.
1: Journalism and media is an interesting space because there's kind of no template. You look at the media landscape right now, it's everything from TikTok to the New York Times and a million things in between. So... In some ways, there's endless opportunities. If you're, an, if you're someone who can express themselves and be an expert and gain the trust and be authentic with an audience, there's sort of unlimited outlets. So media is in some ways kind of more interesting right now than ever. And in other ways, it's it's harder than ever.
0: From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas' Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, By All Means. The traditional career trajectory in journalism, in a time before TikTok, was to start general. Take any reporting assignment you can get and work your way up. Be open to moving around to different beats in the newsroom and just cover whatever they throw at you. Well, Stephen Reginald, he took a different path. Right out of journalism school, he focused on his true passion for outdoor adventure. He launched Gear Junkie in 2002 as a column in his hometown paper, the Minneapolis Star Tribune. A year later, he syndicated it nationally and also started contributing to the New York Times. In 2006, he launched gearjunkie.com, growing both audience and advertisers. It became an authority on all things travel and adventure for both experts and novices. In 2020, he sold the brand to Lola Digital Media, and joined the company as Vice President of Strategy. Last year, Lola Digital rebranded as All Gear Digital with many specialty sport websites, including Gear Junkie. That's where Steven works today, helping those other specialty outlets grow their audience and revenue. It's a big change for a guy who was an adventurer from the start.
1: Yeah, kind of one of my earliest memories is on the Minnesota River, sitting in a canoe with my dad, so very much immersed in the outdoors and adventures since I was a little kid. And Did you really, get that
0: from your parents?
1: Yeah, definitely. They, they traveled and camped and hiked and skied, and all that was integral to my childhood. And I just leaned more and more into it as I kind of grew and became a teen and got into skiing and climbing and all of the above. Cool. I
0: grew up here in Minnesota.
1: Yeah, lifelong Minnesota boy and um, still living here in South Minneapolis.
0: So was there a point that you remember where you connected, I really love being active and outdoors and at some point I'm going to need a job? (laughs) Did, Did those two things cross?
1: Yeah, I think maybe it clicked when I was 14 or 15, started to get into skiing and was getting these magazines. And it kind of clicked like, huh, some people do this for a living. They ski and travel and write about it. And I thought that sounded like a dream job. So that's when the gears started to turn. And maybe in high school, in English class, I was kind of a writer and tried to develop that. So that was the first blush.
0: Okay. So you liked writing. You liked being active. Um, Did you actually major in journalism?
1: I did. In college? Yep. So University of Minnesota Journalism School. And well, there, I started a zine back when that was a thing in the late 90s, kind of a folded black and white pamphlet magazine about climbing and uh, just built that up to a, a sort of small business. It was called Vertical Jones. Cool.
0: And were you handing it out to students or who, who was getting it?
1: I did everything with a with a small team. My girlfriend, now wife, Tara, and then one of my good friends, Sean McCoy, we built it. We did... Writing, photography, graphic design, distribution, kind of soup to nuts. We had it in, I don't know, 20 or 30 shops around the Midwest. Hmm. So it was a real kind of baptism by fire into just building a little publication.
0: And did you actually make money? Did you have We'd advertisers? we sell ads
1: for a couple hundred bucks, and we, our goal was to break even. So it was the goal was to turn it into a business post-college, mm-hmm. and it just never really scaled enough. But it was certainly a great, uh, you know— First, first experience in journalism.
0: Yeah, very cool. Um, so after college, did you go out and get a real job or did you stay independent?
1: I did. I got a job at VNU Media as an editor of a business magazine. And I had a boss that was pretty flexible and he allowed me to build some of my side pursuits. And about a year into it or two years into it, I can't remember now, but the magazine essentially was shutting down and we had this sort of six month window to wind down, and that's when I really started to try to figure out my next step.
0: Hmm, Which was?
1: Which was freelance writing and building Gear Junkie. So when I was doing Vertical Jones, one of the Star Tribune editors did a little profile on uh, me and the crew, and his name's Jerry Zagoda. He's a sports writer, sports editor. Mm -hmm. I talked to him when I was 25 years old and said, do you want a weekly column about gear and adventure? And he said, let's try it. And we launched Gear Junkie. So that was the first iteration. It was a weekly column in the Star Tribune.
0: Hmm. Very cool. So you're actually getting paid. You're in the Star Tribune. Did it ever, did you ever think like, I just want to go get a regular newspaper job or just work for a, a big media company?
1: Yeah, I did work for a big media company with VNU. It was thousands of people and it was kind of a cubicle job. And then my magazine shut down. So maybe not the best experience.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, when you graduated, you're you're a couple of years younger than, than me. I mean, I felt like, you know, from day one of my career, I heard that it was, you know, I was on a sinking ship. Meanwhile, I've, I managed to do it all these years. But I mean, did you have that same sense that mainstream media was not the place to be?
1: Um, Sort of. I mean, for three or four years, I was a writer for the New York Times. So I did lean into those big publications, but as a freelancer. So I was on contract for the Times and the Star Tribune. My beat was kind of adventure travel and gear. And I significantly leaned into that and traveled the world and tested gear and built my brand. And that was kind of the start of it all. So as I was building my independent media brand, I was also working for the established media companies.
0: Mm-hmm. And I bet that that helped kind of establish your, leg- I mean, you're this yeah, exactly. legit guy who writes about gear in the New York Times.
1: Yeah, definitely. It was uh, hand in hand, um, built the Gear Junkie brand while I made some money writing for the Times.
0: So in the early days, what was your vision for for Gear Junkie? Did you st- Did you have a business plan? Was this
1: the the initial iteration was literally a nationally syndicated newspaper column, which back when that was a thing, um, about 2006 or so. And it was at one point in about 15 papers around the country. And I had this vision to be like the the dear Abbey of gear, you know, get a thousand newspapers at $20 a week and that scales into some significant income. I didn't realize that a lot of papers don't want gear coverage. They don't want to cover the outdoors. So hmm. kind of hit a ceiling at, like I said, 15 papers and it was a moderate income, but it just, it just didn't really work. So that was the first iteration. And then at that same time, the whole kind of print newspaper landscape was collapsing. So decided to lean into digital and launch the blog. Mm-hmm. And that was sort of the first part of the, the media company that I built.
0: So what happened when gearjunkie.com went live? Were you flooded what with other gear was junkies?
1: I, <laughs> I found a couple of business partners and essentially we split up the equity and decided to build it. So that was kind of right away maybe a, a good move. I didn't really have the financial backing or honestly a plan to even figure out how to do that. But initially I said, hey, let's split up the equity and let's build this thing. So I found a guy that was our tech person and I found a business side person and mm. then I was the content person. So Smart. Yeah. And, and they was, saw
0: that there was big potential in this space?
1: I think so. I wrote it all the way, you know, for 10 plus years with one of the partners and we sold the company. And so it, it worked out in that, you know, long term sort of scenario, even though we didn't have a plan going into it from the from the beginning.
0: So, OK, before we get to the, the sale of it, let's talk about building it. When, when you first launched, how did you find an audience?
1: It's just kind of hustling every day and figuring out all the angles. So, obviously, search, social, direct, e news. I mean, it's kind of all the levers that you pull when you're building a digital publication. But weren't um, you building
0: this even before? This was before Instagram,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, 2006 is yeah. when it launched. So, I think the first two or three years were really scrappy and we didn't know what we were doing. I don't even think we knew how to look at metrics and traffic and data. Mm-hmm. We didn't know what SEO meant probably at that point. <laughs> um, just kind of building it by gut and also we all had other jobs. So I kind of think that GearJunkie.com launched in 2006, but it wasn't until 2010 or so where we kind of got serious about it. Hmm. And it, what, yeah. what
0: changed or what made you think like, okay, this is really something?
1: Kind of funny, but there was a, an inflection point, and it was, it was when I got tapped to go to Nepal on an expedition to Mount Everest. I was hired to be kind of the media person on a big expedition to trek to Mount Everest, and I sort of had to make this decision with the New York Times and some of the publications to either continue that path or to strike out on my own because there was kind of some conflicts of interest and also just some time and capacity concerns, and decided to lean into this opportunity, go to Nepal and it kind of changed my life in a couple ways and one was just literally getting a peek behind the curtain at these big sponsored projects and all the moving parts and all the the dollars that go into them and thinking why am I not leaning into this a little bit more. So hmm. I came back from Nepal and I stopped working for the New York Times, pretty much stopped doing my other gigs and just leaned into gear junkie.
0: Wow, was that scary?
1: Definitely. I mean I, I don't know, not definitely. It could, was, could gear
0: junkie support <laughs> have supported you at that point?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to remember the economics. I believe, yeah, we are making maybe a hundred k a year in top line. So I made a salary of some sort of some sort, yeah, but mm-hmm. it was it was not um, significant.
0: but you're like saying farewell to the New York Times. I mean, are you feeling like that door is closed forever?
1: It was a yeah, that was tough. It was a dream job. I did fifty something stories for the Times, traveled the world, had like a huge audience, and it was great. But also, I kind of just wanted to build a company, so that's what Gear hmm. Junkie was. So I wanted to take some ownership and build.
0: So, so you get back from Nepal and you feel like you've seen that there's there's a, a world of opportunity um, beyond just being a, a freelance writer. So what changed at that point? How did you, when when this became your full-time gig, how did that change your thinking and how did you get more serious about it?
1: I guess we just grew up a little bit. and <laughs> You had a couple of kids to,
0: at this point, didn't you?
1: Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, yeah, we had two kids. And um, I guess we just started to learn what it meant to build a media company. And we did have this flywheel going. You know, we'd been building an audience for five years. We had a name for ourselves. So how big was your audience? I would say, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand readers a month at that point. So it was was something. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a big part of the equation was Gear Junkie had a name for itself within the outdoor industry. So the advertisers knew us, trusted us, wanted to work with us. So Mm -hmm. and Gear Junkie is this kind of sweet topic where it's at this intersection of like adventure and personality and commerce because it's all about products and gear and buying gear. So it's kind of a sweet fit for a lot of advertisers. And that was not exactly planned.
0: How did you walk the line, though, of being a a trusted expert? And I imagine some of the companies that want to advertise are the same products that you might be reviewing.
1: We just kept sort of the church and state template that many publications hold which means that you don't let the money influence the editorial and we objectively review products good and bad and cover the news and try to just do that straight up and you get you know you gain respect in the long term for doing that
0: right and 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 the advertisers understood that
1: for sure there was there was sometimes when we would negatively review a product or break some news that was not great for a brand whatever and get a little pushback but that's that's kind of media.
0: Mhm. Um as social media evolved as you're building this and already had an audience did that give you another was that like
1: a turbo charge? Yeah, we leaned into that kind of web 2.0 revolution. What was it? 2010 or 12 where Facebook was kind of a massive lever for traffic and that did build us and so many media companies. So I tried to just stay nimble and lean into the new trends and tools to build. Mm-hmm. And at that time, it was Facebook.
0: And, and all this time, were you still writing primarily and yeah. running this company? How did you divide your time and juggle and when did you hire staff?
1: I was editor-in-chief and Mike Santee, my business partner, ran the business side. So I slowly hired freelancers and Train them, and you know basically tried to scale what I was doing and one of the guys I tapped early was Sean McCoy, who was my old college roommate. We built vertical Jones together, so he had gone down to the Caribbean and worked at a newspaper for eight or ten years and came back to America, kind of this wild pirate and <laughs> hired him on and he he basically gave us a ton of energy and helped us build into a new phase so I think that's you know one important lesson is just trying to scale what you're doing, but also lean into what other people can bring.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, were there other important things that you did to to kind of make sure that this kept growing?
1: It sounds kind of silly, but getting an office early on was really? having <laughs> I mean, like a physical place. Yeah, yeah, that was big. So, do you still go to a physical place? We do, but I think it was 2012. We signed a lease and it was like 1500 a month. It wasn't a huge deal, but it was, it was something. And it was a space right on the greenway in uptown with a patio right onto the bike trail. It just became like our, our home base. And we just built a really strong culture around that place. Mm -hmm. And we had Alex Honnold there and Conrad Anker and all sorts of Olympians and world-famous athletes, and they'd come hang out. We'd do happy hours and events and races. Mm. And we had this culture that was just so much beyond a job. And everybody we hired loved, they lived and breathed this space and this lifestyle, and we built a really neat uh, community and and culture.
0: Very cool. Would you say uh, primarily, I mean, in the heyday of Gear Junkie, the audience, was it like really hardcore athletes? Was it novices? How how would you describe your target demo?
1: Yeah, the target demo is, I would say it's more a weekend warrior. And then we, my goal always was to write for a mass sort of consumer audience that wanted to learn about gear in the outdoors, but not dumb it down enough that the core wouldn't want to interface with it either. So it's kind of that fine line, but, and the audience is pretty broad because we cover bike, hike, ski, every kind of every category that you mm-hmm. see, like in an REI store is how I say it.
0: Sure. So your audience is growing. You're doing this full time. You, you've got, a I mean, a, a big following that some mainstream publications would kill for. Were you thinking to yourself, I'm building this to sell? We, we want to be acquired? Or, or how did you see this continuing to scale?
1: There's kind of three phases. The first was just building the the bones of it that first kind of for you know five years the second five years I really 100% leaned into the lifestyle and traveled the world got the latest gear hung out with my heroes and just tried to make some money on on the side of that I mean the the main objective was the lifestyle for that second block mm-hmm. and and then I grew up a little bit maybe 2015 and Decided to double down on the business plan. And in that next five years, we scaled the company significantly from about three or four employees to nearly 20, and then opened an office in Denver. And then we just kept getting inbound about acquisitions. We ended up hiring an advisor and we sold the company in 2020. So it was, I mean, it didn't seem quick at the time, but it was, it was maybe about a five year period of where I really leaned into being an entrepreneur in a business owner and building that part of it.
0: Did you did you feel less comfortable about your role as an entrepreneur than you? I mean, you sort of self-identified as a, a writer early on. I mean, you were a journalist who, you know, kind of built this thing. How did it feel to you to be labeled entrepreneur?
1: I think because I was a freelance writer, that really was the same spirit. So as a freelance writer, you Submit a story, and then you kind of start over. You have to pitch a new story and get a new deal, and so it's it's pretty similar. I had that sort of template in my head, mm-hmm. and it was just at a different scale. So I don't think it was a big leap for me.
0: Cool. Um, did you go out looking for a buyer for Gear Junkie, or did they find you?
1: We did. We hired. We had also, we had maybe two or three offers to buy the company. Went kind of far down a path a couple times, but. My business partner and I realized that we were um, in need of sort of a third party to help us broker. So we did hire an advisor and we did kind of a uh, you know, roadshow where we met with several different entities. Interesting. What
0: was the concern that you weren't getting enough or that it was the right deal? Because did you think when you were going to sell, you wanted to stay with it, with a bigger organization, or were you going to walk away?
1: Um, it depended on what the deal was, but likely was going to stick for a little bit at least and help you know, onboard and grow a little bit. So we didn't know. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of uh, blue sky. Who knows what's going to come? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of our early conversations before we had the broker were with kind of the endemic outdoor media brands. There was one, AIM Media, for example, that owned Climbing and Backpacker and Skiing and a bunch of those publications and went pretty far down the road with those guys, but it just didn't really work out in the end and decided to just get somebody on board that could professionalize that for us.
0: Yeah. Did you even know, like, how much you were worth?
1: No. I mean, (laughs) I didn't know what EBITDA meant or any of that before, you know, when we were talking to some of these entities in, I don't know, 2017, whatever it was, you know, not that long ago. So definitely a, a steep learning curve for me to just lean into what it means to have a sellable business and then get a deal done.
0: So what happened after Gear Junkie was acquired? We'll find out after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode is made possible with support from Platinum Bank. Is your bank a partner or simply a provider? In today's environment, businesses need a bank that can move quickly and act creatively. Platinum Bank understands the Twin Cities market, partnering with clients to overcome challenges and capitalize on opportunities. Their financial products and services are tailored to meet the unique needs of your organization. To learn how Platinum Bank can be an asset to your business, visit www.PlatinumBankMN.com. Platinum Bank, providing a means to a dream. The acquisition of Gear Junkie didn't just happen out of the blue. Stephen takes us through the process. I mean, if you had to give sort of a, a, a cliff notes, I mean, what was the most important learning about what your business was worth?
1: Well, I think it's just making your business sellable for one, is, and, and that comes down to just having kind of the books and financials very clean and readable, and then also being able to kind of present a vision and how you will align with what the acquirer is, is trying to do on a bigger picture. So yeah, maybe it's, it's kind of that strategic fit. Plus, having kind of the nuts and bolts to show the case for the valuation,:
0: sure, and I imagine the the big selling point for those who were interested was your audience. You've got this really engaged, desirable audience of people who want to buy stuff.
1: Yeah, media' is kind of two sided it's it's the audience, and then on the other side it's it's the uh, attraction you have with brands that are your advertisers, so it was both
0: so who bought you
1: yeah so we went out to la i think it was in 2019 in june and met with um this startup called lola digital and at the time they had a couple sites and they were not in kind of the outdoor adventure category and it was not a fit like initially but then a few months later they came back with a, a different offer and we decided to jump on it so it's lola digital media and. um it's uh, yeah. We met with CBSI and Condé Nast and some of these more likely media companies that I thought we might align with and outside and aim media, some of the more endemic, and decided to go with more a startup. And the um, the deal was they wanted us to help them build the company, so that sounded really exciting. Hmm. And they had sort of a plan to roll up media media sites within kind of this outdoor venture category. So that's uh, that was the vision.
0: So you liked the idea of growing a, a bigger company versus being swallowed up by a big traditional media company.
1: Yeah, that definitely. And I've seen many of my peers kind of, I mean, there's maybe three templates. You stay independent or else you you'd kind of do what we did, which was jump on with a startup or three as you get absorbed into one of these bigger entities and yeah, there's pros and cons of kind of both,
0: yeah, so so you get acquired, you you sell. I imagine there's a there's a payday that's had to yeah, feel yeah. good after all these years of building.
1: yeah, it was a significant payday for my partner and I, and after burning the candle at both ends for ten years, we could lean back a little bit. and we signed the papers really right as corona Covid was happening in spring of twenty twenty. It was a weird time mm-hmm. and didn't know kind of what was up or down, sold my company. We actually moved that same month, bought this big fixer upper in South Minneapolis. And and then the world five kind of shut now, down. Right? We have five kids. <laughs> yeah. So there was a little bit of chaos. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but very quickly, it, we realized everyone was going to spend more time than ever outdoors.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. That
0: had to be good for you.
1: It was very good. So yeah weird, yeah, weird turn of events. You just never know. So our, our 2020 and 2021 were really good, and we were able to just build this new company. So the, the cliff notes is that Lola Digital decided once my team came on board to really lean into this outdoor adventure category, and we've acquired six additional properties, raised $40 million last year. And launch relaunched the company as All Gear Digital. So we're now a new entity called All Gear. And we're really focusing on this category and trying to win in the products and gear realm. So Wow. Kind of my, my dream. <laughs> and, yeah.
0: So so you're not an owner of All Gear. I mean you are an employee right. of okay. Yeah. But do you but you still oversee gear? I mean, Gear Junkie still exists as one of those entities.
1: Yeah, I'm on the executive team and I oversee the whole company now. I really am in charge of kind of the six and seven figure advertising deals, the bigger deals, the bigger projects, and then also business development. So trying to close big partnerships and acquisitions. So Hmm. many of that. So yeah, kind of tables turned, right? We were acquired and then I was sort of tapped to lead the initial uh, acquisition. Uh, strategy within all gears. So, since they brought me and the team on board, we've acquired six properties. Many of these are sites that I knew and kind of grew up with. Many of the founders were friends or, or colleagues, and we've built this really interesting company now of entrepreneurs and founders that are working together.
0: So, what are some of the other brands?
1: Yeah, so we just acquired a surf site called The Inertia. Which has millions of readers. It's one of the big properties in kind of the surf world. Bike Rumor, Iron Far, Switchback Travel, hmm. Explorer's Web, and Wild Snow. So kind of all within this enthusiast outdoor adventure category.
0: Okay. So kind of similar to to yep. the vibe of of Gear Junkie. Yep. And in those acquisitions, did the founders come on board with All Gear as well?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to, to Lola and now All Gear's credit, the executives have just only really pour gas on the fire. They've they poured it over all of the founders, all the employees, and they've done it right. So we see so many acquisitions where it's you take an entity and you really strip it bare and you go for profit and you flip it three years later. But we're building for the longer term and it's created a, a great group of people that are, like I said, independently minded, entrepreneurial, and um, media founders. So it's, it's hurting some cats in some ways, though, because everybody is, is very independently minded. So the hierarchy feels pretty flat and that can be that can be good or bad.
0: Are there shared resources? I mean, do they all operate still as like separate businesses yeah. or are there writers or salespeople across brands?
1: We have integrated a ton of the kind of back end. So all the all the sales and SEO and data kind of functions can can work across the network. But then each site has its own editor and its own writers. So really on the content production side, they're siloed a little bit, although we talk to each other. We syndicate between the sites. So, and then on the, the more business back office, it's, it's all scaled as kind of one.
0: I would imagine to new brands coming in, they must like knowing that someone like you is in the C-suite, so to speak, because you understand what it's like to have your own brand and your own voice and, and to know your audience.
1: Yeah, I think so. And like I said, I've known a lot of these guys, they're, they're friends or people I've respected. And, uh, it's, it's, I think having the validation of them seeing me and my team come on board and, and be happy and build is, is a big piece of the puzzle.
0: And for All Gear, I mean, what is, is, is this kind of the, what's the future plan? Is it to keep acquiring? Is it to be, Yeah. what, what are the goals?
1: Yeah, it's both the organic building in-house, so just hire more staff and focus on the processes and workflows and continue to refine and become efficient and build our audiences. And then externally, yeah, look for acquisitions. And we have you know, maybe a pipeline of 15 companies we're talking to right now, and we have uh, some dry powder to buy. So that's, that's our year ahead.
0: Wow. Um, I mean, $40 million is a is a big number.
1: It is. Yeah, that should get us some nice properties to <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
0: um, how, how do you personally feel about this total shift in, in what you're doing? Are, are, do you still write?
1: I do. I keep my toe in it, and I still work with the editors, and I write a couple things a month, but for the most part, I'm on the business side.
0: Do you ever read something on Gear Junkie that you're like, oh, that's not how I would have done it?
1: Yeah, but you got to let go. <laughs> <Yeah>. So. <laughs>
0: You figured out how to do that. I mean,
1: for the most part, they do an awesome job. They've been the editors and they do better than I ever did. So, hmm. um, But occasionally, whatever, you know, there's, there's something I might not love. And I think more importantly, though, we've got much more broad. I mean, we cover overland and auto and hunt fish and some of these categories that I didn't touch. So that's important to you, you can kind of scale what you do only so far. And then you need to find people that have other areas of expertise.
0: Hmm. Um, and, and, and for you, with what you're doing now, how does it compare to the, to the simpler days of, of being a, a writer and traveling the world?
1: Yeah, it's different. I still certainly try to keep active. We were all over last year, and I try to not let go of the lifestyle as much as possible. <laughs> but at the same time, yeah, I'm looking at spreadsheets and PowerPoints most days. So I do get a lot of energy from the business building entrepreneurial side of 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 this as well. So it's it's. I think for me it's kind of a double whammy. I love the topic, I love the lifestyle, but I also do love building businesses and seeing success. So hmm. it's both.
0: So if you had known, um, you know, as a teenager where your career was going to take you, would you have done anything differently? Would you have gone to business school?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I'm. <laughs> I think at this point in my life, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm leaning more into kind of the business side. I get almost more energy out of that. But as a teenager, twenty-year-old, I was a creative type, so that was my outlet and that was where I got the energy. So hard to say. Um, I mean, journalism and media is an interesting space because there's kind of no template. You look at the media landscape right now, it's everything from TikTok to the New York Times and a million things in between. So in some ways there's endless opportunities. If you're, an, if you're someone who can express themselves and be an expert and gain the trust and be authentic with an audience, there's sort of unlimited outlets. So media's in some ways kind of more interesting right now than ever. Mm. And in other ways, it's, it's harder than ever because there's, there's less established templates. It's, it used to be you'd go join a staff at a magazine or a newspaper or a TV channel, and that still exists, but that's just diminishing. And now it's more the creator economy or figuring out what you're, what you're going to do on your own. So it's, it's, it is an industry that really has a built-in sort of entrepreneurial spirit.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm curious as somebody who's long been in this space of very, um, kind of niche, you know, focused publication as opposed to like, you know, mainstream, do you feel like that's the future? It feels like everything is becoming even more specialized. I mean, on social media, we can pick who we're going to follow and Mm. what we want to see. Is that the future?
1: Yeah. I think if you look at YouTube, for example, you can find a travel show that, features someone who goes to the the small cities in Russia and does this episode after episode and I mean that's one I've been watching lately. So <laughs> <laughs> it's uh yeah, in some ways certainly catering to individual tastes and so forth. Although I feel like I feel like maybe there's also sort of this missing type of media that used to make culture more connected. So I kind of pine for when it was a little more simple in some ways, but it, it is where it's at, and it's hard to know. But yeah, I, th- I think in general, for sure, media is becoming more personalized.
0: And what does that mean for advertisers? Obviously, they've been important to the growth of Gear Junkie, and now on, on this larger scale. Do you, do you get the sense that, I mean, is, is that what advertisers want, that very specific audience?
1: Yeah, I think so. And you can target kind of across the open web by looking at someone's IP and connecting with a demographic and serving a programmatic ad so that that's sort of standard practice and it's depending on what kind of campaign what you're trying to do who you're trying to reach that that is already kind of the standard practice something like gear junkie is contextual like someone is in the mind space of gear in the outdoors and they get served an ad for the north face or yeti coolers We, you know, that's what we sell. It's more of you're in that headspace. Whereas if you're reading CNN and you get served an ad for a bike while you're reading about politics, I don't know. There's less of a connection, so (laughs) it works. But Mm -hmm. we we sell direct, which means we don't lean into kind of that programmatic scenario. We sell directly to brands and give them an audience that is in that headspace.
0: Mm -hmm. Are there other beyond the the media properties that you're working on? Who's interesting to you right now? Who, who are you following or watching?
1: I mean, I just mentioned YouTube. I feel like YouTube has just kind of become the nightly sit down with the family and watch TV and find. So, I mean, there's endless, endless interesting channels. And I think it's really grown up in the last couple of years where, uh, you know, there's, there's real journalists and creators that are building their brands on YouTube. and. That to me is, is really interesting right now as one example.
0: Hmm, very cool. Um, do you see yourself always kind of keeping one foot in the content space? Are you always going to want to write to some degree?
1: Yeah, to some degree. I do. I mean, I've published thousands of stories and we've done all sorts of projects and videos and events. And so in some ways I've checked those boxes personally, but it's also my kind of core competencies. So yeah, for sure. I always keep a toe in it, but I've become more um, open to kind of being broad within what I do in my career. Yeah,
0: you're like a business guy now. Do you ever, you ever have to put on a tie?
1: <laughs> no. Oh gosh. <good. laughs> Honestly, I don't think I've ever put on a tie for a business function. Really? I can't think of a time.
0: Never. Maybe well, it's very on brand.
1: Maybe when I was 22 at the tech magazine.
0: <laughs> so if you were were ta- I mean, every business is trying to to figure out how to you know get audience. I feel like more and more businesses want to position themselves as content experts rather than do traditional ads. Um, what, what's your best advice as somebody who's sort of figured it out and cracked the code? What, what do you tell other businesses about content and storytelling and monetization?
1: Yeah, I guess here's what I'll say is you need to break through the noise. So digital media, the internet, it's just so much noise. It's like incredible. And by that, I mean, there's tens of millions of people i don't know what the stat is but every day there's years worth of video uploaded to youtube so how do you break through that noise and it's i think it's finding really where you can add to the broader conversation you can't just do the same so you need to do something new and so whatever that means for your niche it's just got to be new so whether that's really becoming the world expert in a in a topic or else just doing something really differently i mean there's a There's a TikToker who she basically uh, breaks down how to do Excel techniques. And Uh, I think she's called Miss Excel. And uh who would have thought? But it's like fun. So that's like taking something and just putting it in a different format. So that I'm terrible
0: at Excel. I should really check her out.
1: I'm bad at it. Yeah. So (laughs) she broke through the noise. You know, it's like, so I. To what
0: end? Is that? Is she monetizing that?
1: As far as I know, I I don't know this well, but I just kind of brought that up as a crazy example. But.
0: But that's what I do wonder these days with, some, I mean, obviously, you know, there, you were building a platform and, and you did it and it, it's actually almost kind of a, a classic now in, in, yeah. in the way that you scaled it. But there are so many people who are starting out just on TikTok or with the idea of being influential or building an audience, but it's sort of like, to what end?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, po- that's a good point because you, you do need to actually make a living at some time. So, <laughs> so- <laughs> I think I think that is kind of an existential crisis that a lot of creators hit at a certain point, whether it's Instagram or YouTube or TikTok. And so, yeah, in kind of more of the classic, like you said, website, blog, digital publication landscape, there are certainly playbooks to monetizing an audience. So Mm -hmm. it's it's affiliate links it's doing custom content and videos like an agency might do and then it's advertising those are you know three of the big levers mhm and with gear junkie we just have found an audience and we do world class work and we break through the noise by getting scoops on products that are not on the market mm. so i think that's another thing is like really trying to figure out how what you're putting out there is relevant right now. And it's very easy to write a travel article on Costa Rica, right? Mm-hmm. But there's a million of those. Whereas if you write a travel article on a new trail up a volcano in Costa Rica that was open last week, all of a sudden you have just new information. You you have something to add to the broader conversation. So right. I, my early success with the New York Times was really pitching stories that had Kind of this, this double of interesting topic plus news bit. So, uh, my very first story for the Times was ice climbing on the North Shore of Lake Superior. But mm. the news angle was that there was a guide up there selling first ascent ice climbs. So, he would actually chart out these unclimbed waterfalls that were frozen and sell them off. So, it was kind of this controversial <laughs> thing because doing a first ascent in the climbing world is sort of this sacred. You know, authentic thing. You climb it. You christen it. You name the route. You rate the route. You get uh-huh. in the guidebook. He was selling this, so having that kind of extra angle. You know, ice climbing is cool. North North Shore Lake experience, beautiful. Yeah, yeah, but it's kind of like just topical. Whereas the 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 angle, the news angle, sold the article.
0: Interesting. Very very good. Uh, good point. Good perspective. Um, speaking of the the gear. What are you excited about right now? I assume you still keep up on everything. Are you planning any crazy trips or or adventures?
1: Yeah, last year we had Team Gear Junkie, which did ultra adventure races around the country. So uh, it, it capped with a 30-hour event in California. We raced from Mammoth Lakes to Bishop, California. So this sport of adventure racing is extremely gear intensive. Um, I've done maybe a hundred of these events over the years. So Right now, just training and gearing up for another season of adventure racing. And the gear is just not complicated, but it's just simple, lightweight, super durable. You know, I, got, I have a new mountain bike that weighs 22 pounds, mm. and it's just as fast as a rocket ship. So mm. I'm, I'm really at that point of kind of refining my quiver for adventure racing this year.
0: Okay. Any, like, absolute must-have products for adventure racing?
1: yeah um i mean adventure racing is a weird sport but i think the must-haves are um just clothing that you can wear for hours and days on end i i lean into merino wool so really thin merino wool kind of becomes a part of your body it like absorbs sweat kind of sticks to your skin it's 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 uh warm when you're cold. And then when you're hot, it's cooling. So it's kind of a miracle material.
0: Hmm. Okay. More Merino wool. We can handle that. <laughs> um, Stephen, what if any of your children who range from what high school senior down to five, five-year-old right. just got on skis this right. year. What if any of them want to go into media? What would you say?
1: My daughter's a great writer and I was, we were just talking about that. So yeah, like I said, I feel like it's a great landscape if you have an entrepreneurial spirit, you can find so many avenues. So I I think kind of the media landscape is more interesting than ever. And also though, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily take a journalism degree like it used to. Mm-hmm. It just depends what you want to do. So yeah, we'll see. I I do think that it's one of the more sort of accessible Entrepreneurial pursuits is just because there's these built in um, structures around freelance writing or monetizing your social media or your video channels that that exists. I mean, all these big platforms need creators and they need content and thus they've built systems.
0: Right. Right.
1: That said, it's like anything you need to just hustle and figure out how to. Make everything efficient, and you're you're just gonna earn pennies if you don't look out. So, <laughs>
0: yeah, a lot of opportunity, but um, not always the most lucrative. But I but I always say, if you uh, if you can tell a story and you can string the words together, you you can probably make a go of it.
1: Yeah, if you have something interesting to say. If
0: you have something interesting to say, there you go. Well, you certainly do. You have figured it out and cracked the code. It's a great great example and great inspiration to a lot of a lot of storytellers out there so thank you congratulations on all the success and the acquisition yeah, and it's been
1: it's been an interesting ride we'll
0: keep following along thanks for sharing your story steven
1: all right Allie, thanks
0: As you heard from Stephen, Gear Junkie continues, even though he's got a much broader focus today. You can go to gearjunkie.com to check out the latest reviews and products and what's going on in the world of adventure sports and adventure travel. Well, for some more perspective on what Stephen did as a business founder, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business, where Alec Johnson is an associate professor of entrepreneurship. I'm really curious, Alec, um, what stood out to you listening to, to Stephen. I started this whole episode talking about that as a journalist, you, you've got to be a generalist first and then get specific. And Stephen completely bucked that whole trend. And you were, were saying that that's actually what worked for him, was that consistency. I
2: think that's the great contradiction in his story uh, because, yes, you get coached in journalism to be a generalist. But most successful entrepreneurs will tell you, you pick what fight you want to win and figure out how to win it. In other words, discipline, focus. And he never strayed from what he wanted to do, which is his passion about the outdoors. Even though he had plenty of opportunities to stray, working for the New York Times, being pushed in different directions, he never did. And that's what I found so interesting about him as a journalist becoming an entrepreneur and having that discipline.
0: Right. He, he showed up the same wherever he was, whether it was online, at an event, or in the New York Times of all places. His brand was consistent. He was an entrepreneur first and foremost. The other thing that, that stood out about Stephen, again, because he was so true to him himself and his mission is he took his wife along the way he took his college roommates along the way i mean it was really very grassroots partly because he started so young is that something that 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 founders can replicate is it a good idea to go into business with your college roommates well that that that's
2: a different question and <laughs> it's never a good idea to make a college roommate with your best friend so probably <laughs> the answer is no but i think the bigger point in this is the Value of doing great networking and not really knowing when or who you might end up going back to for help. And mm-hmm. so I found that part of his journey particularly fascinating is that he ended up going back to his college roommate to really become his, his cornerstone partner in growing the brand. So the network matters, but we just don't know where and when somebody's going to play an important role in that.
0: Right. Right. Be open to to everybody you meet. You never know when it when it might come back around. Mm-hmm. Um. The other thing that stood out to me is, you know, Stephen was doing this at a time before everybody wanted to be an influencer. I I wonder today the idea of building a brand that is content first and is about being authoritative and building audiences. I mean, that's that's kind of that's what eludes you know many brands, and that's that's what he focused on. What do you think is the takeaway? Is it that you do lead with storytelling? Is it that you just have to be in the right place at the right time? What's what's the big takeaway in your mind?
2: I thought the big takeaway was he was always focused on content and audience Mm -hmm. and worked really hard to understand who that core audience is that was consuming his content. He talked about first you build the bones of a business, then you build the lifestyle of the business. And then you grow up with the business when it becomes something bigger. And so I see a lot of of his focus on audience and content being fit well together in how he approached this whole process. And that is a lesson that every entrepreneur who's succeeded has learned. Focus on audience, focus on product, get them fit well together.
0: That's right. Whether you're inventing software or a gadget or whatever it is. Or you're a bookstore. Well, maybe that's not a
2: good example because they <laughs> suffer so much today, but yes.
0: But, but the point is, any kind of business, you need to have the story and you need to be clear on who you are and, and what your messaging is. And that's how, you, that's how you draw the audience.
2: That's how you draw the audience and that, that clarity. So simplifying down to, I'm just going to focus on outdoor experiences. It makes his marketing message easier. It's mm-hmm. very clear. It's very simple and very directed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. If if you had to put money on it, Alec, do you think Steven is going to be able to stay in the corporate role? Is he a VP forever now or is he going to wander back into entrepreneurship?
2: Great question. I thought about that. And early on, my first, my early answer listening to his whole interview was, no. Nope. He's not going to survive. But then the way he spoke about what he gets to do now, helping others like him, mm-hmm. he's, he's already like the equivalent of a mentor or a venture capitalist. He's nurturing people to, to have the wonderful experience he had. So right. I, I got a feeling he's probably going to stay there for a while. I think he loves it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. He's got five kids to put through school too. So that might motivate him. (laughs) You never know. Alec Johnson, thank you so much for the perspective and the thoughts, audience and content. It all matters. That's for sure. Thank you, Allison. Thank you once again to our presenting partner, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash by all means. You'll find all our past episodes, interviews with entrepreneurs, and great perspective and insights from professors just like Professor Johnson. Thanks again for listening to By All Means. teamwork to make by all means and we've got some all-stars thanks to our audio engineer tom for digital support is ricky hannigan and dan nepo thanks to the university of st thomas opus college of business and schultz school of entrepreneurship especially dean laura dunham for all their support our theme music is by song finch thank you for listening to by all means